Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are looking for your support. As you know by now, the Tortoise Shack relies entirely on listeners to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. And the best way to do it, in fact, the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis is join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link is in the top of the podcast that you're listening to right now. Click on it. Have a look around. There's over 1,300 podcasts there, all plea free. Our entire back catalogue, including everything from Reboot Republic, Echo Chamber, Police, Glow West, Shrapnel, and lots and lots and lots of members-only exclusives. And if that's not enough of an incentive, you will be getting the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you are keeping the podcast free for everybody and helping keep the mics on at this left-leaning progressive podcast platform. If you're listening to this before Thursday, the 28th of September, we will be live in the Sugar Club in Dublin City Centre that evening. We have a fantastic lineup, including two very special guests of former, what you would call, RT talent, who are about to blow the whistle on what has gone on in terms of two-tier work practices. Tickets for that are at the bottom of this podcast. It's, it's the eventbrite.ie link. And if none of that floats your boat, you can still help us by recommending us to a friend. We rely on you. Word of mouth. No ads. No sponsors. But please do consider clicking on patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and Martin, we are back speaking to one of our listeners' favourite guests. It goes without saying that every time this man comes on, uh, we get loads of messages from people saying, love this guy's insights, which just goes to show that people don't get out enough, Richard. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's because, you know, it's the joy and the warm feeling that he's bringing to us all. I, I think that's really it, Tony. <laughs> people, people, <laughs> my, my sense of hope, yeah. that's what brings you all out in a warm glow, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're delighted to be rejoined on the podcast by Professor Richard Murphy. Uh, he's he, as you all know already, is is an expert in uh, accounting in economics, and but but has a uh, real world experience. And we're hoping to get into some of that real world experience, some of that kind of um, reality versus theory when it comes to the simple matter because it's not simple, of wealth taxes. Richard, thanks again for coming on to join us. It's great to see you. Good to see you too, guys. Well, listen, um, be- before we sort of... I want to frame this, obviously, through an Irish lens, if you'll, if you'll indulge me for a moment, because the latest report shows that uh, out of our, um, our tax returns that there's been a blip in the uh, corporation tax returns that the, the state have got them... They've overestimated for this quarter and we're a billion shy now rem- let's remind people that we've been running billions ahead for the last number of years but nonetheless um forecasting is not the the strength of shall i say the department of finance but um in hidden amongst the figures richard is that is that uh despite ireland having the highest level of people ever in work where the middle income and low income family households which is the majority of households are actually mm-hmm. worse off than they were a decade ago, and we need to somehow mm-hmm. rebalance that. Our, our live the Irish economic system is not serving the society, and it's not very different in the UK, Richard. It's very much like that in the UK. In fact, I've been looking at a lot of data of late. Um, because of this debate around tax, there's a fascinating article in the last few days in the Financial Times. Um, by Chris Giles, a guy I've known for a long time, economics editor there. And he's basically saying that at the Jackson Hole meeting in the USA of central bankers this summer, 
The discussion wasn't really so much about interest rate, to everyone's surprise, but about tax. And the speculation was on whether the model, the neoliberal model of government of do less, tax less, go home, um, your job is done, that's been the theory of politics for a long time, is over. And that, in fact, governments have to do more, can't borrow more, and are going to have to tax more as a consequence. Now, that's a theme that I've been working on, because in the UK, we have politicians lining up to say, there is no money left, there is no opportunity to tax, we're not going to tax anymore. And therefore, whatever your hopes, aspirations and dreams, like having a school with a roof on it, which won't fall down on your children, is beyond our ability to reach. Now, and I'm not kidding about that last one. That's the latest crisis in yep. the UK, if you haven't heard about it. Con- now, con- concrete falling on people. Try- it's, it's a slight inconvenience in a school hall, you know? Um, but so I've been looking at how can we get hold of more tax? And that means I look at the tax system as a whole. I look at who's been paying tax, who hasn't been paying tax, how it's behaved. And this means lots of data crunching. Uh, And I like data crunching. I'm sorry. I'm sad. I'm a geek. I admit it. Nerd. Call me what you wish. That's me. Um, Lots of spreadsheets, lots of um, data from the HM Revenue and Customs, HM Treasury, Office for Budget Responsibility, Office for National Statistics in the UK. Put all that together and we come up with a simple picture. And it's this very straightforward one. The people who pay the most tax in the UK are the people on the very lowest incomes. I mean the very lowest incomes. No, they're not paying income tax. They're not paying capital gains tax. But they are paying one heck of a lot of value-added tax. They're paying a heck of a lot of council tax these days on their use of a property and all sorts of other things. Their overall tax rate, 44%. It goes down to be pretty flat rate tax on incomes and gains over the range from you know 20% of the population to 70%. It then goes up a little bit. But when we take into consideration the growth in wealth in the UK over the same period that I've reviewed, which has been 2011 to 2020, in other words, let's get the crisis over from 2008 and let's run to COVID because this is meant to be normal times. This is as close to normal times as I can get for the data purposes. So as clean as you can be in that period when you actually look at the taxes on wealth, Although taxes on income average 32.9% of UK total income, GDP, taxes on wealth for 4.1%. And guess who owns the wealth? Well, the wealthy own the wealth, of course. And how many of them are there? Well, not that many. Um, Around 50% of all UK wealth is owned by the top 10%, a significant part of that by the top 1%. Um, Over 70% is owned by the top 20%. So when you add those two factors together, we get a massively regressive tax system in the UK. In other words, your tax rate goes down for every increase in income and financial well-being from growth in your capital that there is across the spectrum from 44% right at the bottom to 21.5%. In other words, less than half at the very top. Mm. Now, that is staggering, unreal, unrealistic, and suggests there's a massive scope to increase tax in the UK. How much? £170 billion a year of extra tax could be raised in the UK. That's coming on for oh, well over 20% of the total UK tax take at present. And it's all because the wealthy don't contribute enough. 
And I suspect that Ireland is in exactly the same place if somebody was geeky enough, nerdy enough and willing enough to actually go and reproduce the data. It fails in the same place, Richard. Without a doubt, it fails in the same place. And as Tony pointed out, we are poorer now than we were 10 years ago, which is 2013, which was, you know, pretty slap bang in the, the worst of times. We were better off in the we worst were, of we, times. We, we were in a bailout, Martin. Yeah, and we were better off. Richard, the, the wealthy don't give it up voluntarily. So how do you do it? Well, this is, again, what's really important. And there's been a lot of debate about wealth taxes. And that's happened in the UK because Rachel Reeves, who is the Labour Party's shadow chancellor, who's likely to end up as the first female chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK. I welcome that aspect of the appointment. But she said no wealth taxes. She's also said no increases in capital gains taxes, and she's not interested in a lot of other increases in tax. Well, look, I'm going to ignore Rachel on this, to be totally honest. Why? Because she's going to need money, bluntly, whatever they say now. She's going to need money. Any party in power in the next five years in the UK is going to need money. And they're going to need more because there's so many things to deal with. Now, you can do a wealth tax, or you could try to do a wealth tax, is what I would say. But actually, it would be really difficult. Firstly, the wealthy, as you say, don't give up easily. They will lobby, they will harangue, they will chase, they will bring all their firepower to bear. They will fight like hell against a wealth tax. The amount of political capital it will take to raise a wealth tax will be phenomenal on the part of a party who tried it. Think, think about, even, sorry, just for listeners' benefit, think about how Maloney, who we're no fans of, got away with it for 24 hours since she was going to introduce a tax on the bank's profits. And 24 yeah. hours later, she, she she went, oh, oh no, but turns out actually when the rubber hit the road, the capital said no. Similar situation, um, famously, Yanis Varoufakis turned around, he was now the, just elected yeah. as the finance minister in Greece and said, walked in, met with, with Wolfgang, um, oh, wasn't sorry, wasn't Wolfgang Schultz, but he, he walked in and said, this is what we want to do. And your man said, no. <laughs> you know, that was. And this is the problem. But it's also a practical problem. I mean, as well as being an economic justice campaigner and a professor of accounting, I have, have been a practicing chartered accountant for 40 years. You know, I, I try to keep it quiet, but the words chartered accountant are what you'd find written onside me if you cut through me like a stick of rock. Um, because, yeah, that's what I've been. And in that work as a practicing chartered accountant. I've done a lot of tax cases with HM Revenue and Customs over here. And a lot of those have been valuation disputes. And the point about a valuation dispute is that, well, let's take a simple example. How much are those books that I've got behind me, which the guys can see, but I know on a podcast you view, you listeners can't see. I have a stack of books behind me in my office. How much are they worth? Now, if we were trying to really value me for the purposes of a wealth tax, we'd have to include something as mundane as my book collection. I got a lot of books. And are they worth a quid each, if that's what they could be sold for at Oxfam or wherever else I give them to? Or are they at replacement cost or what? 
How much is my car worth? That's probably pretty easy. I can go and find that out. How much is my house worth? That's pretty easy because actually I live in a pretty ordinary house in a pretty ordinary street. But if I'm really wealthy and I live in some really bizarre castle situated on an island somewhere and it's going to be a one-off valuation, how much is it worth? Who knows? And if I'm a really wealthy, I won't have a collection of books. I'll have a collection of racehorses, all of which I'll claim on the day. Losers have only got three legs and God knows what else. And Till next weekend when they win at the 315 and then i've got artwork art notoriously difficult to value on and on and on you can't value wealth very easily when it comes down to the detail you can in aggregate we can say there's over 15 trillion of wealth in the uk and be reasonably confident that's right but when we actually come down to try to work out who owns what and how much their own worth is a nightmare in the disaggregated microeconomic scale this stuff doesn't work so wealth taxes a way to basically collapse the tax system with administration. We have to do something different. The something different is simply collect more tax using the existing taxes that we've got. And those taxes are in every country I've looked at in Europe, and Ireland is no exception here, um, riddled with loopholes absolutely riddled with them, all provided completely legitimately by government in ways that are absurd, which will always reduce the tax on the rich. You know, it's we can't tax investment income as much can, can as I, we tax can I, can I make one quick point for the listeners' benefits? Yeah. We, our, our TDs have to do with their declaration of interests every year, okay? So how many properties they own, what, what, what boards they sit on, what... Um, what way they 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 have other any other income streams and all the rest of it. and we've famously seen in the last couple of years how bad they've been at that. Like one guy woke up one morning and discovered he had fourteen other properties he hadn't been telling us about. You know, oops, four. But one of my favourite ones is is our is um our former uh, tarnished uh, uh, Simon Coveney. When you go to the register of interest, Simon Coveney looks like he's a pauper, yet he has a family trust. That is managed by Davy stockbrokers. That is worth gazillions, you know. So it's the simplest way of. So he's even he's beyond the pale, where whereby the money that they're managing doesn't even have to, you know, bother the the us um, who are trying to get the register of interest because we don't know what Dave you're doing over here, and we don't know what, what the interests are. But he has one one thing logged against his name, and Robert Troy, who was a gobshite and should have known he had fourteen houses, he's lambasted for putting for not putting down his fourteen homes, whereas the other guy. He's not. He's he's playing the game that Richard is talking about. He's over there beyond beyond the um the the, the reach of uh, our even our transparent systems that we'd like to believe we have. Yeah, this is the problem. Um, you know, what are those games? Um, investment income is usually taxed at less than working income because there's no social security contribution on investment income. Because if we don't treat those who own wealth nicely they'll all run away no they won't they now, don't we, we get that an awful lot here that is uh, a mantra we've had for oh god as, as long as i'm alive the rich will flee f-l-e-a i've often said the rich don't flee they flee f-l-e-e now it, it, which is the true version no they don't flee um they don't run away um, so double L E uh, F L double E. I'm oh, sorry. Is uh, you know, not true. They don't do that. They don't run. They simply stay. And why? Because their families are in the place where they are. The golf club is. All their friends are, and everything else. Very, very few of them. Of course, there are exceptions. 
but very few actually really leave. And there's ample evidence of that the world over now. In the States, they have discovered, of course, there's big tax differentials across some state borders in the USA. So moving 20 miles can make a significant difference to some people's tax bills in the States. And people don't even do that because their children are at the local school and they don't want to disrupt it or they don't want to go to the golf club and everything else. Our social connections are what hold us in our place. So we don't move. So by and large, that is true of the wealthy as well. But we have to have low taxes to stop them moving, even though they don't. We give them very low rates of tax in their companies and let them store their wealth hidden from view. We give them tax reliefs on their contributions to pension funds that are disproportionate to those that we give to everyone else. They don't pay as much social security contribution as everybody else in the UK. I think it's the same in Ireland. Oh, it's, it's um, worse than Ireland. Gains when it tax rates. Yeah, it's really distorted. Capital gains tax rates are really low. I, uh, and, and even silly things. I mean, this is, I mean I, I've looked at areas that most people don't even think about um, and which actually you're not going to be able to think about. But curiously, I found a Brexit benefit um, in the UK. We can look at removing the VAT exemption on charging VAT on financial services in the UK. And who consumes all the financial services in the UK? The wealthy. So we could charge them more VAT on that. And how much does it raise? Well, actually, eight and a half billion a year of bungs to the wealthy by not charging them VAT. Now, when I add all, I begin to add these things up, I get to tens and tens of billions of year. I mean, I'm looking at 30 changes. Not all of them are going to be massive. Some are very big indeed. Some of them are quite technical, but they're all changes to the existing tax system where tweaks to the system can actually be made that deliver the changes that the wealthy will find it very hard to fight back against because they're easy to implement. If, and if, that's the key. There's a fight here and we've got to get the tactic right. And the tactic is beat them by making lots of small changes. Just on having read the um, the some of the recommendations you've done, um, one of the things that stands out to me is what you've... We had uh, Joe Pina from the Portuguese government on a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and they were talking about you know some of the changes that they were making, and obviously they're struggling with their own housing crisis, and they were introducing a uh, you know an, a more another subsidy, which is what it was to landlords to try and you know make sure that that uh, that tenants can't be paying more than thirty five percent of their income uh, for for rent, but the subsidy was was resulting in uh, what I would call. Um, uh, how do I put this? Unproductive income being taxed less than the guy who was actually, and a lot of what you've you're covering, Richard, in my to my mind, is actually saying, see all that unproductive income that that that, yes. the, that the wealthy have. Let's actually let's just put that on a par with the guy who's working in the in the in the in the warehouse that the guy who who benefits from the 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 profits of the warehouse. Let's put it on a par with that. Am I am I being too simplistic? No, you're not. You're being absolutely right. I mean, I'm using a number of straightforward ideas in what I'm doing to assess changes in tax systems. And one of those is what I call horizontal tax equity. In other words, a pound in your pocket is worth a pound or a euro in your pocket is worth a euro wherever it comes from. So it doesn't matter whether it comes from work or rent or investments or capital gain or even actually a gift. You're a euro better off. And in that case, if there's going to be a tax bill, it should be the same on every euro, whether it comes from any one of those things. So we shouldn't be saying 
a euro from investments doesn't need to be taxed as much as a euro from work, and a euro as a capital gain doesn't need to be taxed as much from work, or even gifts don't need to be taxed at all, which lots of them are. Now, that's controversial, but that's actually how the accounting theory of this works, and it's how we even prepare the accounts of multinational companies now. We treat every pound of increase as being equal and we actually account for them all on the same basis. And that's what I'm saying here. They are actually all contributions to the well-being of the recipient, so why should we tax some less than others? The other theoretical argument, of course, is a straightforward one. And for those who know microeconomics, it's simply based upon marginal utility theory. Marginal utility theory says that as you get more euros, the value of each additional euro is less than the one before. And we can know that's true. If you give €100 Euros to somebody who's got next to nothing, they will treat themselves as being rich. If you give €100 Euros to somebody who's got a great deal of money, they'll hardly notice it. They might not even bother to lean down and pick up the notes on the pavement to actually be the €100. Euros. So the point is, we should be creating a system of vertical tax equity, which is what that second part is, which involves progressive taxation. Those with the lowest incomes should pay less tax than those with the highest incomes. And yet we have managed to create a situation in the UK, and I'm quite sure in Ireland, but I haven't got the data for Ireland, where we come out with the exact opposite. We have a deeply regressive tax system. We tax at highest marginal rate, those on low incomes. And there are bumps all the way through the system. But fundamentally, it's deeply unfair. And what I'm trying to do is suggest there's lots of ways to put this right and to raise money and to pay for the public services that countries are going to need. But Richard, what you're saying is revolutionary because in Ireland, we have huge income inequality. Um, we, ha- we see yep. Without social transfers, we are the second worst in the OECD. But then the state does the heavy lifting of paying people HAP and rent allowance and children's allowance and social transfers of some sort that help lift people just above the threshold for uh, the at-risk-of-poverty level, literally lifting 40% of households out of this level. And they will say, isn't that the state performing wonders? Rather no, than... it's not the state. No, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, look, I mean, obviously, we need the state to correct market failings. And I'm not saying that tax is capable of addressing market failures in wage rates. Um, It isn't. Clearly, we have a problem that people are undervalued for the work that they do, and we need to provide people with a better, decent means of earning a living. Um, And I don't think tax will solve that. But what we have got is a situation where even though we say, oh, look, the state is correcting, the state is not correcting enough. We still have gross inequality, massive inequality, which is becoming more apparent to more people as time moves on. And I'm really worried about the political consequences of that. Let's be blunt about it. Let's move to that point. As this inequality grows, and as more and more people realise that basically life is maybe getting by, and quite often not quite getting by, that, and there's no fun left over, mm-hmm. then frankly, they're going to get more angry. I'm still amazed that people aren't angrier than they are, because that staggers me. 
But people are going to get more angry unless we redress those balances. Those people with all that wealth are going to suddenly find they're going to be up against some very angry people who are not going to tolerate it anymore. That's happening here. But we're, uh, the vast majority of people are missing the signals. And just this weekend, we had a, a really good example of it. There's a band called the Wolf Tones. I'm sure you know who they are, I do. Richard. <laughs> And they they have a particular song that has ooh-ah, up-the-rah in the song. And uh, when they play it, the stiff white collars come out and they're really quite um, verbose about how bad this is and people shouldn't sing along to this. And, you know, they don't realize the past is, the you know, what the past was. And, and we, we get the full, we get the full rainbow of opinions. They played this weekend at a festival, and it was jammed to the rafters with young people singing the song. Now, there was, of course, voices screaming, saying, this can't happen, these people don't understand our history. If they under It's economics. It's economics. These are people who are detached from the history of the older generation. Yes. The status quo that set themselves up, that now benefit from the system. Yes. This is the new status quo saying, give us rents that we can afford to pay. Give us homes and give us security in work. And we don't like your system. And And that's what's happening. And young people are not connected to that old narrative. I mean, it's easy to remember, if you're older, why you could take offense at that line in that song if you want to. But when you're young and you're angry and the system is stacked against you, this is a means of protest and it's there. My real fear is that the right will take over. You're a hundred percent. You're a hundred percent correct. That's the space that's and been. That and it scares me rigid. And that's one of the motivations for this work to show that an alternative, which does not mean giving in to the right, is possible. Yeah, we saw this with uh, Vox recently. People saying the narrative of the Spanish election that Vox lost votes. But what people didn't pick up on was that it was because um, the 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 right wing parties were trying to fill the gap that you know moving further to the right to to, to move into that Vox space. We saw how effective Nigel Farage is, you know, as without ever without ever really winning any elections yet. There here he is dragging mm. this this Tory party, and now we see it. You're absolutely correct to point that out. But if we can, um, I want to just be very. Can we get a bit nerdy for a minute? So what we've established is it's very hard to put a price on wealth because it's subjective, it's going to lobby. A lot of people who are wealthy will spend 10 million quid rather than be taxed 100 million quid. I'm, I'm correct, you know, this is the, this is the, this is the modus operandi of, of, of how money operates. So what you're suggesting just is, is actually the levers of power that we have right now, pulling them, but pulling them harder when it comes to other, other income streams. How... Is there an appetite? Because you go back to what you've what we've seen, and again, I want to sp- we want to speak specifically to the UK now. There's no appetite in the Tory Party, but if the Labour Party I were to believe are the incoming government, Richard, they they seem to have the uh, we're supposed to be believe that they're just saying nothing at the moment, but they're going to be great once they get in. I don't think from reading the stuff you've been putting out, you're buying it. I'm not buying that. Um, that is not what I read at all into what's happening. We've had a cabinet reshuffle, shadow cabinet reshuffle, from Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, and he has basically consolidated the position of the Blairites inside the Labour Party. 
Now, whether Blair was right or wrong in the 90s, he was certainly a damn sight better than the Tories were in the 90s. But whether his ideas were really relevant at the time is still open to debate. What is certain is that they aren't relevant now. They were small state, small tax, let's not do what we have to do, anything more than we have to do, and let's go home afterwards and have a party. Um, you know, Britpop happened and the whole Brit thing happened because he basically wanted to party and not do the job of being in government. And there is still that mood around Keir Starmer. They're saying they look to the private sector to solve the problems of the National Health Service. They look to the private sector to build the houses that are needed. They will be giving out vast quantities of contracts to people to put right the school failures, if that's what there is, when in fact, when I was first involved in school governorship, uh, which is a long time ago, 40 years ago, um, there were vast armies of council employees who could deal with repairs to schools and more cost effectively, if I might say so, than actually private contracting normally does. And on and on. They are not convinced in of the need to either expand the role of government in society or to pay for that at present. Now, whether they will be forced to change by the realities of office, because basically the road has run out and the rubber is going to hit what's left and they're going to have to, I'm going to, too many metaphors here, but they're going to have to change as a consequence. I think that's possible because I don't think there's a government anywhere in the world that isn't going to have to spend more over the next five years to deal with the social problems, the realities that they're facing. Um, you know, I have written a blog saying that the Tories have been asset strippers in the UK, and I think that's very much true, by the way, of Irish governments. Their belief in business has been very much that of the private equity model, take over government, sell off the bits um, that you can, flog them to your mates, make a profit if you want, um, leverage up the rest with piles of debt, move on, get out, let somebody else deal with the mess. That's the private equity model of um, business, and that's what we've got as government. I think at the moment Keir Starmer's still in that mould, and when I hear that some members of his shadow cabinet in particular, Wes Streeting, who's the shadow health secretary, who is most amusingly called Silly Boy by one of the very best commentators on the NHS in the UK, um, a chap called Roy Lilly. Um, Silly Boy Streeting just seems to somehow work for him. Um, you know, he's so naive about what is going to be possible without ever committing any money at all. And this idea that there's no money is going to either ruin the Labour Party completely, destroy it, end its history in power, as much as the Tories feel as though they are coming to an end of an era in power, um, and require the creation of alternative ideas, or we're in deep trouble. Now, what's the replacement ideas? As I say, they're either the far right, or we need a democratic renewal. And at the moment, there's not much sign of a democratic renewal. There is fear of a right-wing coup of some sort or other. I'm really scared because Keir Starmer is in exactly the same place as where, bluntly, David Cameron was in 2010. We we are on a brink, I think. I think we're on a 30-year a, a general generational change, not just in the UK, in Ireland as well. The structures yeah. that we're, we're living in now are 30 years old. This concept that we live in now is roughly 30 years old between Ireland and the UK, but they're outnumbered now is the problem. They're simply outnumbered demographically. There are more voters who can vote against them. 
do I think Labour in the... I think there's parallels between Labour in the UK and Sinn Féin in Ireland. There's certainly parallels about running to the centre. There's certainly. But the centre is where the most people are. And everybody keeps forgetting that. It's not where the marginal parties are. It's where the most people are. Yeah. the centre. And it's not the Tories, but nor is it Labour. I always... Remember the words of a Labour MP I knew quite well. He died a few years ago, Austin Mitchell. He was the Labour MP for Grimsby for ooh, 30 to 40 years. I knew him towards the end of his life. Really interesting guy. Um, never got to the front bench because he was always too bloody awkward to ever do something like that. Um, and Austin said that when he joined the Labour Party, he was considered to be a real right winger. By the time he retired, he was considered an outright lefty. As far as Austin was concerned, he had never really much changed his mind. He was a very clear social democrat to his core who believed that the state had a really big role to play in transforming people's lives. Um, But he had apparently become a left-winger for being what he thought to be not far to the left of the centre ground. Um, Now, I don't think I'm a real left-winger. Um, I there's loads who do. I'm well aware that lots of people think I, I'm I, real left. I don't. I don't. You're certainly not. You're certainly not any further left than I am, and I'm pretty out there, Richard. You know, but I, I just hide it better. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I feel as though I'm you know, obviously on the left, but I don't feel I'm that far different from lots of people I talk to who think they're around the middle ground. They want a working, competent government that does the job of delivering for people. And I don't think that makes you very left-wing. I mean, if you talk on the streets, my mate Danny Blancheflower and I both espouse the economics of walking around, talking to people, finding out what people think. If you actually talk to people on the streets, and I make sure I know lots of people and talk to lots of people, what you find out is that that's what people want. They aren't interested in dogma. They aren't interested in fiscal rules. They don't give a damn about somebody's theory, whether it's Hayek or Marx or whoever. They just want working systems that make their lives possible. And that's what the centre ground is. I want to make that work. That's it. Good governance is quiet governance. You just go into the hospital, it works. You get on a train, it's on time, it's a reasonable price. You're not listening to the theatrics of government. Good government is quiet government. It just gets on with the job. In Ireland in particular, the theatre of government has become more important than the job. No, uh, no, you're actually wrong, Martin. We haven't got a pitch. uh, We couldn't hold a candle to the likes of Small Boats Week. We have, we, we, I, I know, we, but it's we're, on we're, scales. It's I, on I, scales. I, I, we're, we're, it's certainly we're, on scales. We are now at the stage whereby, you know, the same week where we're told there's more children on hospital waiting lists and waiting on assessments of need for mental health services in Ireland, the, the Taoiseach had the temerity to say, I'm launching a child wellbeing unit. And everybody look at my child wellbeing unit and don't ignore the actual report that's come out with 39 recommendations that we haven't done. That's absolutely what Martin's getting at. But it's a big scale, like I mean, small boats week. You know, Jesus Christ, Richard, you're, you're like it's it's you you're that's where the fear for the right comes in when you've got absolutely that, kind of, that theater, yeah, 
And they have manufactured that theatre, but I am a little worried about an Irishman claiming that there isn't a theatre of government in Ireland when I look at the role of the Abbey over the years in Irish politics. So I'm sorry, I'm slightly questioning you there. Sorry. And the actual, uh, the the, the head of the Abbey listens to this podcast regularly. Hi, Mark. Nice. Hope you're listening. Enjoy. I'm a fan. Yeah. If I'm in town, you'll find me somewhere at the Abbey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, but look, just just on the on the point though. So again, um, I think we've been very clear on this. So let's let's put it in an Irish context. There is this reactionary right um, that says the, the left want wealth taxes, yet they give out about property tax. Uh, Richard, we have a huge issue here because what the property tax is a tax on the family home. It's um, mm. you know the, uh, the it may be um, someone on a disability pension, it may be someone on a on a on a on a widow's pension, for example, and we're asking them to pay this on an asset that you know they, that is has appreciated because of our property market, and they don't have the income. That's not a real wealth tax relative to what you're talking about. How do we how do we how do we burst that right wing myth that if, if you don't accept this property tax on the people who actually can't afford to pay it, well, then we're not even going to bother trying to tax the people who we know in that top 10 percentile have 50 percent of the money or the wealth. It's pretty bizarre to have to go back and quote a guy from 250 years ago when you talk about these issues. But you know, there is Adam Smith and you know, he wrote in 1776. And actually, he was pretty darn revolutionary in his own way. He was up there with Thomas Paine at the time in some very real ways about how he thought about society and how many problems he anticipated. But he talked about tax. He talked about an efficient tax. And it's quite clear that council taxes, property taxes, are not very efficient taxes precisely because we can't collect them from certain people with fairness. They're also deeply um, inequitable. And that was one of his other criteria. It didn't have to be efficient, it had to be fair. And these taxes are unfair. Now, I don't know the details of Irish property taxes as well as I should. Actually, I don't even know the details of Northern Ireland property taxes or Scottish property taxes as well as I should. I know the uh, details of English tax property taxes moderately. Even Wales has a different system. So everywhere adds its own twist. But there are certain things that are really absurd about property taxes. There's no value knocked off the bottom of the scale where you say basically this part of value is not taxed. So they're inherently unfair. Even if you talk about them being a proportional property tax, well, the proportion should rise with value, but you should actually knock the first bit of value out altogether at 0%. And when you do get to high-value properties, you have to take into consideration the capacity to pay. And in that case, you have to actually allow, if there is the problem of the proverbial old widow, widower, doesn't matter which, who can't pay, who's on a low income, lives in the old family home, just let the tax roll up until death. But it's really, really not a good way to collect tax. When I can collect so much more tax by taxing capital gains fairly, When I could collect so much more tax by, bit revolutionary this one, looking at charging capital gains tax on your main residence when you no longer have a use for it, on death, when you and your partner have ceased to have use of that property, and then we actually charge capital gains tax on your lifetime property gains instead of 
some forms of inheritance tax, we might then end up with a much more sensible tax base. Because I guarantee you, the capacity to pay exists at the time of the death because you no longer need the house. It's simple. We have to get these alignments right and we have to work out what's really going on and what we want to do. And we want to stop this idea. Well, it's a very English idea, isn't it? The, oh, my castle is my home and I want to pass it on to the next generation. You know, I'm 65. My dad only died three, four years ago. God, if I waited for dad to die to get home, I'd have been sitting around a poor old soul for a long time waiting for the fella to go. You know, I didn't. I got on with it. And there are so many stupid myths around this. What we have to look at is the realities. And I'm trying to do that in what I'm talking about as well. Now, some of the ideas I'm going to put out there among the 30-odd are going to go down like the proverbial lead balloon. Um, some of the ideas on taxing houses with capital go on. Give, might give, be give, give us give us two little things that you that you aren't out there yet go on give us a sneak preview ah come on i am not going to give away all oh, my news okay, to you okay okay but well, look, there's some things that i've already mentioned here i mean this is a simple one you know the tuc the trade union congress in the uk said they wanted a wealth tax a one-off they said so very expensive to create very expensive to administer once and they reckoned it would raise 10 billion quid if a I tax. Oh, with a wealth tax. If I just restrict the pension tax relief on contributions by people who are higher rate taxpayers in the UK to their pension funds a year, I can collect fourteen and a half billion by that one simple change. And that's a recurring now, that's the a... fact is, let's also put that in context. The average subsidy to a higher rate taxpayer in the UK, for their pension savings, a year is £8,750. The state old age pension for somebody who's actually retired is £10,600, and they're meant to live on that. Yes. But we're giving £8,750 to the wealthy just to bung a bit more into their pension pot. Now, See, this I, is hideous that I we're doing that. Your, I love your idea of using the existing system, making small changes that pay dividends. Now, we've heard this mantra before in a different guise. We have a friend, Simon McGarr, data protection solicitor, and he's always about what can you realistically do? Yeah. What can you realistically, no pie in the sky, how can you shave all the edges off and make it simple? So to do that, you use existing systems. That's what you do. You, you don't build anything new. You tweak the system. And if you think about it, that's how the wealthy got to, to make, keep their wealth and increase their wealth in the first place, was by simple tweaks to the existing yeah. system. They took themselves outside the system. I want to bring them back into it. It's yeah. as simple as that. Yeah. I, mean, I, had, I had an academic um, send me a paper when I first said I was doing this exercise. I won't name the person. Um, not fair, because I don't agree with almost anything. He said, look, it's ever so simple, Richard. We have a land value tax. We have a graduated income tax uh, and a universal basic income. Ag graduated for every scale of income, which is just totally impossible to achieve. Um, some weird further ideas 
on recognition of some sorts of gains, the, the, all the, of which were new. And he said, this would solve all the problems. And I said, but you'd never get it to work. You'd never get it through. Yeah. So what's my point of proposing your system? I can't deliver that. I live in the real world. But, but, I don't but, but live Richard, in a theory world. The, the land value tax... <sighs> As the problem with the land value tax right now in an Irish context is that we would be we would be introducing it after the horse is bolted, okay? Because we've allowed yeah. we've allowed so many of these multi uh, multinational REITs and vulture funds and cuckoo funds to to and you know developers to to hoard land to let the, the the land value build up over a number of years, and now they're getting out, and the Irish state is 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 effectively doing. Do you remember NAMA, Richard, um, our national yeah. asset management, where we bought? Yeah. all of these bad loans now God, what a mess that was yeah now we're kind of having NAMA part 2 called the land development agency and what they're doing is they're saying to these people who had who had these la- who had, who had all this land and said now we were going to build houses or apartments mostly we couldn't build them for less than 365,000 per unit and the state are saying well you know are you going to build them now or not and they're like no not, not now not with the cost of interest rates and all the rest and the state are going yeah. well we'll subsidise each unit to the charge tune of about 85,000 so it's another bill- bay- bailout so land value tax we could have done with it i'd be honest with you for the last decade but now we're going to do it we're doing it arse ways yet again whereby the the people who've sat on it for 10 years are going to be rewarded well you're talking more actually i think tony about a development land tax which is slightly yeah. different from a land value tax we did have a development land tax in the uk which was basically give planning permission for something which is going to increase the underlying value of the land and charge tax on that increase in value now that would have been a good tax um, that's not happening so much in the UK right now, same as it isn't in Ireland. The land value tax basically says you scrap income tax and you charge everything on the basis of the value of the property you're in and you value and you tax the rental value of that property at a high rate. But again, we run back to the thing that there are people living in houses who won't have the cash flow to pay that tax. And they say, well, yeah, but that will encourage people to move out and move into smaller properties and that would be great. Yeah, except that that just is an offence to the way that people live. That's social engineering, and we don't want that. Ultimately, ultimately people don't want to be socially engineered at a certain age out of their homes. Whether you like it or not, they don't want to do that. And that does offend people. So you've got to live in the world of what's politically plausible. So that's what I'm doing. Um, And some of the tweaks are, you know, quite big. We're talking about big changes to national insurance. Nobody's going to be very surprised by that. Some big changes to inheritance tax, taking away some of the reliefs. Beloved of the wealthy, uh, which they use, agricultural property relief, otherwise known as the tax relief for grouse moors. Um, you know, and uh, is that appropriate? Can we change some of those rules? How do we look at that? And various other things. The offensive, I mean, I'm giving you more clues here. The offensive um, fact that uh, George Osborne introduced a thing in 2016 that if there was money left over in your pension pot when you died, it could be passed on inheritance tax free. So as a result, now the wealthy don't draw the money out of their pension pots. They live off their savings because the savings would have been subject to inheritance tax and the pension pot is now being left to sit there, inheritance tax free, to pass on to the kids. I mean, stupid things that need to be corrected. One thing I'll challenge you on that, Richard, you call those loopholes. Uh, They they, they can only be, in my my, um, opinion, loopholes through one budgetary cycle. And if they remain open, they are then policy. Look, they are policy. And I talk about in about 20% of my recommendations are to do with reforms to tax administration. 
because there's no point introducing a whole load of laws and then not being able to actually enforce them, of course. So we've got to increase the number of tax inspectors. And that's true worldwide, by the way. And we don't have enough people enforcing tax law. Um, so, and they always pay for themselves, you know, staggeringly. I, there isn't a tax inspector on earth who has yet not paid for themselves um, in terms of extra revenue generated. But we also need to actually manage tax systems better. So we need to identify tax gaps. Ireland is not good at that. Why doesn't it collect the tax that it should be collecting? And we also need to identify something called tax spillovers. And tax spillovers are these things that undermine the tax system so that we have policy that actually in itself undermines the in, the credibility of the tax system and provides an opportunity for someone to abuse it. So we need to have regular, systematic, systemic checks on what is going on inside the tax system to make sure it works. And nobody's doing that. No one anywhere is doing that. And if we did that, these loopholes could be closed and remain closed. That's the point of doing this. So we don't just need to change the laws. We need to change the tax system. And we collect more money, of course, as a result. Richard, that's been a really interesting conversation. Really, really interesting. And I certainly think, <coughs> excuse me, I certainly think that incremental change, which is what you're looking for, is yeah. incremental change. That's the mantra of government. That's the mantra of civil service. It's very hard to refuse something that makes sense. And it's very difficult to refuse it. And as you said, the UK needs money. There's the bottom line. And I've said it before to other people we've talked to or economists, people work in finance. If you don't give a little now, you'll end up giving a lot later. Mm. Mm. It, it, the, the elastic will snap back. Mm. It's, it's what force it's going to snap back. And the longer you hold on to the very last of your wealth or the very tippy top that you don't actually need, the more will be taken off you in the long run. Again, as we always say, climate change is the, is the elephant in the room. Yep. It will accelerate every single process. Thank you. I think it's very interesting. I'm really interested to read the 30 things. I do hope that uh, taxing uh investments is in it and i certainly do particularly anything you have on the stock market i hope that's in it I it is do. it is don't worry listen folks thanks so much guys thing, what is what they say what is it what was the phrase um and again i can't remember who said it so again i'm plagiarizing someone else but it was you know if you're if you're paying tax uh, in, in ireland you're probably not for for the government but it, but if you're but if you're not paying ta but if you but if you're not paying tax on it you're probably rich uh, just bear that in mind. We'll talk to you all very, very soon, folks. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.